if you'd asked me about 10 years ago, I probably would have said, yeah, that's probably the right way to go. Um, but again, as I've gained more experience and gained more knowledge and become more comfortable within myself, I know that we can't be apolitical. Uh, I need my students and their families to know that when they walk into my classroom, that they are going to be safe, that they're going to be loved, that they're going to be seen, My that biggest be goal for them is for them to become better people. I don't know anybody who's become a better person knowing when the Gettysburg Address was written, but I do know people that have become better knowing the how and the why of history. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher, and as always, I'm joined by Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is All the Above, a show that takes you through the news and headlines of all things related to education, because we know, like you know, that education does not get the attention that it deserves. Now, if you randomly came across this video on YouTube, for one, we hope you enjoy it and we hope you sit with us as we dive deep into some headlines and, and uh, topics in education. But also, we would like you to know that we are um, what you would call the, the cool kids in the education realm of YouTube because on these YouTube channels and internets, education definitely is not talked about as seriously as what we deal with here on All of the Above. So please uh, go ahead and consider giving us that thumbs up and subscribe if you enjoy what you're seeing. And if you're listening to the podcast, thank you for doing that. And do remember, we have all kinds of video extras on our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash all of the above. So, Jeff, what's on today's agenda? Oh, man. Well, today, as always, I suppose, uh, we got a good one. Um, but I'm, I'm feeling great about today's episode. Uh, of course, we got our, our headlines we're going to dig into, those juicy yep. stories in education that uh, you know, that don't get enough attention. Um, mm -hmm. And then for our for our seminar today, um, we have an incredible guest. Uh, his name is Leo Glazé. Indeed. Um, he is a history teacher, a black male history teacher. So we're going to have on stage, uh, on all the above, three black male history teachers. First time ever. I think that's happened, if I'm uh, remembering for sure. correctly. Right. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the uh, just really uh, complex and interesting issues that come up when you are a black male teacher of history and a black male teacher of history in 2019. Man. When we just live in a crazy time, man. It is. <laughs> so. it's, it's 2020, Jeff. Check your calendar, man. Yes, just, my bad. <clears throat> Got to get that right. 2020 uh, yes, or 2020-ish. Uh, so so we're going to get into that today. And uh, Leo's going to offer, I think, a lot of his perspective about how he brings his own uh, sense of self and identity into uh, into his work yeah. uh, and navigate some of the complexities of, of being a black male educator and a black male educator teaching history uh, in this time in history so you definitely don't want to miss it yeah it's levels to this man yeah man dang all right but up first will be our do now where we take a look at recent headlines in education particularly headlines that you might have missed stay tuned all right folks now it's time for the do now let's take a look at some stories that you might have missed jeff how are we doing the do now today well, Manuel, it's uh, I think it's my favorite type of do now. Uh, you know, being a being a teacher 
who was mm-hmm. heavily invested in literacy in my own practice mm. and a principal of a school that was themed around reading and writing and literacy. Okay. Uh, we got we got a lexicon today. We're going to get some vocab Ooh. going. Nice. Yes. Build that vocabulary up. All right. Yes, what's the indeed. first lexicon term? All right, Manuel. First term up is bamboozled. Ooh, bamboozled. Indeed. I can't hear that word without thinking of... Uh, We've been hoodwinked and bamboozled. Swindled. Swindled. Bamboozled. Led astray. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. (laughs) Plymouth Rock landed on us. Yeah. I mean, one of the all-time great uh, pieces of oratory in in American history. Uh, We are not talking about uh, a Malcolm X uh, speech today. Um, However, we are talking about potentially the entire country getting hoodwinked and swindled (laughs) and led astray and run amok. Is this another Betsy DeVos story? This, it could be. Do you want to make it that? I'm just curious. I'm sure we could find a way (laughs) quite easily (laughs) if we wanted to. That is true. Uh, No, we are actually talking about the extent to which the the website that many of our viewers and listeners are probably familiar with, Mm -hmm. Great Schools, Mm -hmm. greatschools.org, their rating system for schools uh, is actually being, uh, is actually, excuse me, helping to nudge families towards schools with fewer black and brown students. Right? No. Yeah, I'm, yes. So we're going to get into this. So great schools, which has a stated mission uh, of helping all parents, especially those who are low income, make more informed decisions about where to send their children to school. Um, has come under scrutiny uh, and under some question, in particular in a really groundbreaking recent piece uh, published by Chalkbeat. Uh, it was written by Matt Barnum and Gabrielle Lamar Lemie. I hope I'm saying that. What a fantastic mm. set of names she has. Mm. Um, so they have written uh, just a, a blockbuster piece talking about how great schools' ratings effectively penalize schools that are serving largely low-income students and those serving largely black and Hispanic students. Um, these schools generally uh, are given significantly lower ratings than schools serving more affluent and more white and Asian students, according to a big analysis that they did. So uh, essentially, for those who maybe aren't familiar, what Great Schools does is it rates schools on a bunch of different factors, um, and they, they very heavily uh, base their ratings on um, standardized test scores, and in particular standardized test scores through the lens of what we call proficiency, right? So right. proficiency is what the state determines as like what is uh, sort of good enough or where should a student be based on their uh, grade level, right, Um, when they're taking the exam. And so what this analysis has shown is that by looking at proficiency as the primary measure of the ratings, uh, they are, uh, even if perhaps unintentionally, um, offering a much more privileged set of ratings to schools that start with higher performing students, wealthier students, and in the United States of America, that means in most contexts, more white and Asian students. Right. right? Um, And since they're not assessing growth uh, with nearly the same weight that they assess proficiency, they're actually leaving out of the equation and their rating system uh, a bunch of schools across the country that are doing a great job at helping students grow and grow very quickly uh, and much more quickly than average that often serve lower-income students, black and brown students. Um, And so 
this is a this is a fascinating story because this also intertwines with like how people make decisions about where to buy a house and those yeah. sorts of things, right? So, Manuel, um, what do you think? Yeah, so it's not surprising. I don't think I, anyone in education, I think that's familiar with great schools and you know understands where the rankings come from. I think all of us are not so surprised by the study uh, or by the findings here. I know myself as a teacher, I get asked a lot by just friends that aren't in education about neighborhoods and schools when they're looking at homes to buy. And, and when I ask them about what they mean by, you know, because folks will say, oh, are the schools good in that neighborhood? Or are the schools good in that um, city? And I ask them, you know, what they mean. They don't really have a, 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 a way to quantify it. And when I ask them what are they basing their assumptions on when it comes to if a school is good or not, a lot of times they say, oh, based on what it says in great schools or according to great schools, this and that and whatever. And of course, that, like you said, is based largely on proficiency in these uh, standardized test scores. So one really disheartening thing about it is this this chalkbeat piece, which is really good. We'll link it on our website. They talk about one elementary school, uh, Knapp Elementary, I believe was his name, um, that has had tremendous growth. And teachers, students, families all, uh, who are at that school say uh, phenomenal education, great stuff going on there. I believe it's in the Denver area, yeah. received some acc accolades, some state level accolades for their growth and improvement. But their grade school's ranking is still really low because at the end of the day, proficiency-wise in, in reading and math, they are still behind the state average or what have you because they have a population that has been so historically uh, marginalized and disenfranchised. For me, it begs the question, like, how is a school supposed to get ahead if it's doing all this great stuff, yet their ranking is still low? And because the ranking is low, a lot of families are choosing not to go there. And in the piece they mentioned, it's hard to even find that school when you search by zip code because the algorithms there prioritize schools with higher scores. So how is Knapp Elementary supposed to get ahead if it continues to miss out on perhaps some of the higher uh, performers on tests whose parents take them to other schools? Uh, it's just, it's really a bit of a mess. And again, this is so much of this is based on test scores. Which you love. Which I love, just of course. Just to make sure all just of to our viewers clear. are clear. And testing champion, Dr. Rustin. Yeah. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Um, and I think the, you know, the Venn diagram between parents who don't want their kids to have so much test, uh, test focus in their schools. They want their kids to have, you know, more comprehensive education and they opt out of testing. And the parents who make school choice decisions based on great schools, which is based on testing, that Venn diagram is basically a circle and it's just really, really problematic. And, you know, I think any teacher who teaches in a school that has been historically marginalized like I do um, knows that great schools is not not the friend here. Yeah, so I mostly agree with what you're saying. Okay. The, one, the one thing I do feel like we need to be a little bit objective about is mm -hmm. I don't think great schools created school segregation. They didn't create America, it. That right? is true. And they didn't they didn't even create the the more recent trending back towards segregation like right. that started before great schools. So I want to make sure we're not just saying like they I if we got there. rid of great right. schools or if they stopped talking about tests that all of a sudden we'd have integrated schools. Oh, that's yeah, for I sure. Think, you're right. I think the reality is their calculus around what makes a great school mm. mirrors the type of social uh, behavior that we see in our society, which is wealthier folks and yeah. white folks tend to want to find schools that have kids like theirs in them. Right. Yeah. Um, and create stratifying systems around us, right? Neighborhoods that people can't afford to move into little tiny districts that are carved out of bigger districts. Right. right? Um, and so great schools is, I think, uh, sending a mirror up 
yeah. uh, to, that is showing us what we have created here. Um, now, they could do better. In fairness, they've tried in 2017. They redid their, their formula and started taking into account growth and giving it a, a larger yeah. weight. Still have a ways to go on that front, I would argue. But also, not every state reports growth. Yeah, data. California doesn't. Exactly. So it's very difficult for them uh, to to right. use that data if they can't access that data. Yeah. So yeah. that's true. Um, one thing that I, um, you know, so of course I look at my own school on great schools to see um, what it's shaping up like, and yeah. um, there is a school that's literally 1.6 miles away, and the school that I teach at the equity score on great schools is really really low really low equity score and the school that's 1.6 miles away has a perfect 10 out of 10 in the realm of equity and that school is a predominantly white school they have exactly one percent of their student population that are black students my school has roughly 40 percent who are black and to me it just shows how misleading these numbers can be because if they have such a small population of students of color and those particular students at that particular school might be of a much more privileged at least in terms of class perhaps than my students it looks like that school is doing great work in the area of equity and i can guarantee you they are not doing anything above and beyond what my school is doing and they're not even close to having the conversations around trauma-informed care and around uh, you know race gender and, and all these things that we explore here um, they're not having any of that at that school yet their equity score perfect 10 out of 10 I'm, I'm that's a problem sensing, i'm sensing some bitterness here are you uh are you trying to say that equity is not just giving yourself uh you know a a, a less impacted population to deal with and then patting yourself on the back when you do a great job yeah I'm, <laughs> that's not equity. i mean no it's it, it's not and it's a phrase i've used a couple times on this show uh cooking the books making it look like you are doing great work in the area i mean the school's not doing it on purpose of course but um you know the calculation be behind equity scores on great schools which i think is a response to the early criticism of great schools uh adding to uh these problems with segregation um yeah it's that school could cook its books by having the few students of color who yeah. score outstanding on their tests. And it looks like they must be doing great work with uh, students of those racial backgrounds when in reality it's, it's not that at all. But anyways, I could yeah. go on. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a lot to do. Uh, so does great do. schools. Uh, so let's get on that. Great schools. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next lexicon term for today. What do we got? What do we got? Ah. Uh, Precaution. Sounds prudent. You know, one must take precautions in the tumultuous times in which we live. Yes. Those tumultuous school segregating by way of online uh, school choice measures. But let's not get into that. All right. Take precaution. In this case, against, well, going back to online in the tech world, uh, parents taking pre uh, precaution against their kids data being used or misused we should say by the big tech companies so this story comes out of maryland and um it was published in the guardian a story by lois beckett and it she reports that parents in montgomery county maryland have won a major victory for student privacy tech companies that work with the school district now have to purge the data they have collected on students once a year all right, basically a week of deleting data that was collected through the year 
by students' activity on these devices that they use in schools. So the large school district is near the headquarters of the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency, and it's a place where... Deep state. Deep state. Deep state. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, man. I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> We live in crazy times. We do live in crazy times. You gotta laugh or you cry. And, you know. All right. So uh, this is a place where many federal employees, lawyers, and security experts send their own kids. So like in many districts, Montgomery County Public Schools gives students laptops and has hired tech companies that uh, track students' activities on those computers, including monitoring what they research for and what websites they visit and uh, parents basically are concerned that the uh, digital footprint left by their kids throughout the course of a school year might come back to harm those kids later in the future if used or misused as part of the growing data mining industry. So these parents uh, organized and now that school district deletes student data, not all of it, but much of it um, during what they call data deletion week, once a year. So Jeff, uh, what are your thoughts about parents being concerned about their students data yeah so I'm not a uh, you know data scientist or anything like that uh, but I think we have every right to be uh, pretty much paranoid about the use of data you say that um, so calmly pretty much paranoid so you're right. just because yeah. you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong and the reality True. is yes your phone is listening to you and yes your you know Indeed. your Chromebook is reading everything that you put into it. Yep. No, there's not some boogeyman at Google who's like trying to ruin Manuel's life. However, the use of this data is certainly not being uh, put to use to help you, right? It's that being is true. put to use to do one of two things. Convince you to buy stuff, mm -hmm. right? Or it could be leaked somehow and, you know, used in some way to like scandalize something you've done right so i i do think that from that standpoint uh the parents are right to be thinking in a very custodial and protective way about the right. data of their of their children i do think it's a little bit funny and like a, maybe a little bit reflective of some of the the bouginess of uh montgomery county maryland yeah. that like we're talking about like parents of third graders that are like well someday when little jimmy runs for senate yeah. like it shouldn't be held against them that he looked up the f word in you know in elementary school and i'm right. like first of all relax second of all a little bit ahead of ourselves aren't we that little jimmy's gonna be <laughs> running for senate but you know hey hopes and dreams like yeah. do it big jimmy um yeah so I, I found that a little bit amusing but i agree i i support this i think we should think about uh other places in which this should happen mm -hmm. um and in which the reality is like the data that is being captured about people uh should be understood to be theirs and not to be you know, a commodity that can yeah. be, you know, traded on uh, uh, to, to, you know, profit off of them, uh, in particular when they're students that we have, you know, as a captive audience in school. Yeah, I, I agree. So I teach at a school or in a district, really, that has one to one uh, ratio of students to uh, Chromebooks in our case. And I'm always telling my students, I'm letting them know that everything they do on their Chromebook, everything they do is is recorded somewhere in some fashion we have obviously go guardian to uh, monitor and, and check for any uh, red flags of uh you know students that might be thinking about doing something harmful to themselves or to uh to others but beyond that there's just everything that comes with google and google drive and youtube and and all that's being recorded now of course there are 
agreements in place to separate the data from the student in such a way that the name isn't attached to the data for whatever the data is used. But as this article points out, it's not too difficult to link that back together yeah. um, after the fact. And I worry about all this data that is being kept on my students and what that might mean down, down the line. Because I don't think any of us fully understand the road that we're on. I don't think anyone can tell you what things are going to look like 10, 15, 20 years from now. So any assurance that you might have received about like, oh, this data will never go beyond their years in high school. We don't know that one day some major conglomerate might not purchase this bit of data and link it up and then sell it to different corporations for their hiring purposes or whatever. You don't you just don't know what's going to happen with it. And, you know, students do different research projects on anything from obviously matters of race and racism to school violence and, and gun violence. And I don't know what necessarily uh, they might have typed up that gets recorded somewhere that could look like something questionable down the line to somebody that's not in the context of that particular research project or whatever. So I fully support this idea of deleting students' data and just just wiping it clean to the extent possible. But I, I do see that the tech companies for sure, like, getting these Chromebooks into students' hands, I'm sure part of their calculation is the money that could be made based off the data that comes from that. So deleting yeah, the gonna, data is going to be a, you know. I'm going to take it one step further. Not mm -hmm. part of the calculation. All one, of the calculation. 100% <laughs> of the calculation. You're Corporations right. don't do stuff for, at that scale, at mm -hmm. least, right? They might like, you know. They're not just um, trying to help the kids? Buy you a ticket to the Dodger game or something for free. But like, <laughs> they're not giving out Chromebooks at, you know, discount prices uh -huh. to millions of kids across the country without thinking about the profit yeah. implications, right? And to me, that's actually what is more uh, concerning, right? Because mm -hmm. I can see all, there's going to be like a dystopian movie made about how some kids Google searches at school were used against their parents or whatever in Absolutely. some way, right? And even in a more benign sense, uh, you know, your kid is looking up certain stuff and then the ad words you start seeing in your Gmail, yeah. you know, are like, oh, let's buy, you know, um, poster paper uh, yeah. you know, yeah. or whatever, right? So, like, these are things that I think shouldn't be happening. And it is not the purview of, you know, Google and other companies to to be able to use student data in that way, particularly when the, the, um, the mining of that data is done in a space where the school the student has no choice about offering up that data so yeah so good for these par parents in maryland even if they're a little ahead of themselves on their kids being president someday you know a little bit good little for bit. Them. yeah now we just spoke about great schools and i wonder if there is a dystopian future where an added component of the great schools ranking deals with student data collected at that particular particular man, school site and to, uh what the students now, typed man. in and how how articulate their their essays on google docs were and all that just yeah. saying it could happen it, i mean it could let's hope it doesn't let's hope it, it doesn't could. so <laughs> all right one last lexicon term for today what do we got jeff all right man well uh we got a word um that uh you know is is um broadly applicable let's say okay mediocrity hmm well, I don't know anything about that, Jeff. I strive for excellence each and every day. Right. Yes. I forgot Dr. Rustin, after all. Indeed. Nothing mediocre about this guy. Indeed. Uh, so we're talking about mediocrity in the context um, of America's performance 
uh, on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, otherwise known as the NAEP, yeah. uh, which is, for those who maybe don't know, is like the big nationwide standardized test that samplings of kids, uh, fourth graders and eighth graders from across the entire country take um, every couple of years. And it's, uh, I think, in like common parlance or, or whatever the right word is in our national discourse, when people think about like the, the report card for American schools and we talk about how kids are doing a reading math this is probably the data set that yeah. you know you're referring to right um so the most recent nape uh, results are out and uh this uh reporting we're taking from a story in la school report uh written by um kevin mankin um and the scores were released uh last week from the national assessment of educational progress a few weeks ago now i think a few weeks ago now yeah. yes um uh and had some bad news for american schools uh essentially showing that our performance has been flat in mathematics and is down in reading. Uh, so most states saw little or no improvement in either subject with their lowest performing students showing the most significant declines in scores, which uh, is obviously concerning. Um, so results in both ELA and math for both fourth and eighth graders were either flat or declined by one or two percentage points uh, across the board. Uh, for the country. So, um, you know, Manuel, um, you being such a great fan of testing uh, and this uh, story being all about testing. Fake news. Uh, <laughs> what do you have to say? Yeah, so I, of course, am not a fan of standardized testing um, really at all, but especially the overuse of it, which is pretty much what the last several decades have, have um, been for us. But I mean, as a classroom teacher, this is this is quite disheartening. Uh, obviously, I mean, this is my profession, and NAEP scores are some scores. As far as standardized tests go, I personally have always felt a little better about NAEP than I have about all the other standardized tests that uh, students have to take. And um, it's disheartening that despite all that has been done, that scores are still f mediocre and um, particularly when it comes to reading scores. So the, the story out of LA School Report on this uh, quotes Peggy Carr, who's commissioner of the National Center for Educational Statistics. And she says that since 1992, there's been no growth for the lowest performing students in either fourth grade or eighth grade reading since 1992. So we're talking the 90s, the pre-No Child Left Behind era. Yeah. We're talking the full extent of the No Child Left Behind era. And we're talking uh, a great chunk of the Common Core era. And none of those eras have, quote unquote, obviously solved the issues that we have in education. But it seems like one from one extreme to another, like nothing's really moving in terms of reading scores. And that's really, really, really disheartening. Yeah, so I both fully agree with everything you just said. Uh, oh, we can stop there then. We're good. So, yeah. <laughs> all right, next next topic. <laughs> um, yeah, so I do think, I think the NAEP is maybe one of the more, uh, like, crystal clear examples of the important uh, value of standardized testing as an instrument in education, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is a, di a very different statement than, like, do we use that instrument in the right yeah. way, right? But, like, it, we, it's the best tool we have currently available 
for making assessments across large populations that allow for comparisons. Right. right. Um, and some of those comparisons can be used for things like, do you qualify for this college or whatever? Some of those comparisons help us understand, are we actually doing a good job? And is there some equity across the system? Right. So uh, so I'm grateful that we have this data. Um, even if standardized, no standardized test is perfect unto itself. Right. Um, but I do think that uh, it's concerning. I also think it's perhaps not as concerning as we might think. And here's why. First of all, in our international comparison, so you might have heard of assessments like the PISA or other, yeah. you know, other uh, Those tests. results came out recent too. Right, to compare us with countries around the world, America's not near the top. We're also not near the bottom, right? We're like somewhere in the middle. Yay, middle. <laughs> and, and like, so, you know, I had a football coach who used to say when we would watch film, like, when you, when you watch the film the next day, it was never as good as you thought it was, and it was never as bad as you thought it was. Hmm. And I think the reality is, like, you know, America's uh, sense of self-righteousness is like, we're the best, we're number one, right. whether we are or we aren't. And when we're just told we're not the best, we just feel some type of way about it, yeah. right? Um, so, but we're not the worst. So, you know, yeah, we have a lot right. to work on, but like, it's not like um, the world is coming to an end. The other thing that I didn't see mentioned in the article mm -hmm. and I would be very curious about is the extent to which actually the, the longitudinal comparison from the early 90s to today belies the changing demographics of American schools, right? That American public schools have become more diverse and diverse along lines that I think do have impact on uh, standardized test performance, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the number of English learners who have entered American schools since 1992, right, um, you know, uh, is significant. The, um, the number of students living in poverty uh, in American schools has grown. The opting out of public schools by, you know, uh, a lot of white uh, right. middle class and wealthier families, right, um, means that the the work of the public school system to help students achieve at higher levels has gotten more intense at the same time as budgets for education in a lot of places have either legitimately just gone down or in a relative sense due to inflation and rising costs and those sorts of things. The budget might have gone up, but has not kept pace with the costs of doing the job. Right. So I, I wonder, I'd be curious to get some PhD student out there to like do that type of comparison to mm -hmm. see like, is it an apples to apples comparison? Yeah. Um, or is actually what's happening that like in the, doing more complex work, American teachers, American principals, schools are actually doing a better job than they were in 1992, even if the proficiency rates are the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, some some reports about these uh, NAEP scores have in I haven't dived deep into the scores uh, themselves just yet, but some reports have shown that. Um, the so-called gap achievement gap between um, black and brown students and their their white and Asian counterparts is wider than it has been before or as wide as it has been in the past so to your to your uh, question about the changing demographics of American schools um, I wonder if you know, despite however the demographics might have changed if that if that gap isn't isn't closing at all then I wonder you know what what is there for us to learn from in terms of our different approaches since the 90s for dealing with uh, increasingly diverse set of students and um, buried not buried but uh, uh, Corresponding with this story, of course, is the story of uh, PISA scores coming out. And one takeaway from that that I saw was that, you know, 
around the world, across the globe. There is a strong correlation between those particular scores, achievement on the PISA, and the um, amount of poverty and the socioeconomic uh, status of the students in that country. So no matter what you look at, no matter what you, you know, take away from this test and standardized testing or anything um, related to that, I think we could all agree that resources are a giant determinant of how a student mm -hmm. does on a test, on how a student does just in life and all sorts of different health measures, like resources matter in a giant way. So if nothing else, I hope we for sure continue to have that discussion about uh, resources and how to allocate resources across our American schools, for sure. Yeah. All right. So that was the uh, first do now of the new year. And up next, we have our first seminar discussion of the new year with Leo Glazé. And it's going to be a thrilling discussion about how he approaches the teaching of history, particularly as a black male educator. All right. So stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's seminar discussion. Now, we know a lot of you are listening to the podcast, and you've been with us for quite some time. And if you've been listening and you haven't seen any of our videos on YouTube or haven't watched the video versions of our episodes, um, we'd like to inform you that um, both Jeff and I are both black. We're both black males. And yeah. we have been this, this whole time. <laughs> this whole time. You don't say this yeah. whole time? Yeah, hopefully we haven't lost any anyone right. um, <laughs> off of that. Of course we haven't. Um, and we recently had a discussion with Min Jung Pei, who talked about the importance of teachers' identity and teachers doing their own identity work. Of course, above and beyond race, also uh, gender identity and religious identity and, and all that's included in what makes a person who they are. Uh, but that being said, we thought we'd bring a guest to the show today to talk about being black and being a black male educator teaching history in today's polit politically intense climate. So with us today, we have Mr. Leo Glazé. Leo is a history teacher at an independent middle school in the Los Angeles area. He has a BA in history from UCLA, the greatest university in Southern California. Just putting that out there. All right. I like that. Go Bruins. That final qualifier. Just, just you know, just, <laughs> you know, facts are facts. Facts uh, are facts. What could we say? Go don't Bruins. I want to start a fight with the audience. Here. I'm saying though. Um, but uh, in addition to that, he has a, a bachelor's in political science and a master's in history from Arizona State University. So go Sun Devils as well. In addition to teaching history, Leo coaches middle school boys and girls basketball teams and operates a nonprofit called Warm Hearts Incorporated, which he co-founded to provide services for people experiencing homelessness in the greater Los Angeles area. Leo has been teaching for 10 years and he joins us today to discuss how he as a black male educator teaching history in today's times experiences his practice in the classroom at such a such a critical time in our nation's history. So welcome Leo to all of the above. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with identity and racial identity. So first question for you, um, something that we uh, definitely want to hear your, your perspective on is how your identity as a black educator has impacted your teaching of history. Well, for me, um, the one thing that I can't change about myself that everybody sees is the fact that I am black. Um, I walk into a room, I walk into my classroom. The first thing that anybody's ever going to notice is my skin color. And um, when it comes to teaching history, um, at such a volatile time, and history itself being volatile, um, especially with the subjugation of black people, 
um, I try to incorporate as much as myself into the curriculum as I possibly can. Um, that might make for some uncomfortable moments for people at the onset. Um, but they also know, and just like my students know, that me being black is something that's not changing. Um, and then also me teaching the history of America, including black America, um, is important with that. Because one of the things that I teach them is that black history is American history. So, uh, Leo, I, you know, personally, that that very much resonates with my, you know, my own thinking and my own experience, uh, you know, as a as a former uh, history teacher. Um, but I'm also very curious because in your context, your uh, student population, as I understand it, is mostly white students. And so I think, um, you know, a lot of the folks that I know who kind of have a similar stance on the work are mostly teaching black and brown students. So I'd love to hear a bit more about, uh, you know, your experience in particular working with white students and bringing yourself and bringing that kind of philosophy to the work to that student population and that uh, community. Yeah, um, I've been teaching in independent schools for 10 years, and that's the only setting that I've ever taught in. Um, I can tell you that it's been an evolution of sorts. When I first started teaching, I, I can kind of go back and look back and, and see the places in which um, I wasn't always presenting myself as, as black in the history, and I was really just kind of concentrating on the profession and kind of proving my worth. Um, as I gained more experience and I got more comfortable with kids and I got more comfortable with the parents and I started really kind of jumping in and doing more of the work, um, more of myself came out and became more apparent. Um, it was also very interesting for students and parents to kind of see the way in which we were talking about history. And it wasn't always necessarily from the standpoint of view of um, white people are wrong, um, black people have been wrong throughout history, but it was more the idea of talking about people being humans and everybody having decisions and choices that they can make. Um, I've had a couple of parents over the years that have um, kind of pushed back on what I've taught, um, but the kids walk away from my class with a deeper understanding of the history of this country and more importantly, the history of the world. And uh, one of my biggest goals for them is to walk away from my class a little bit of a better human than when they walked in. And so uh, that's really kind of what I keep at the, at the center of my teaching. Yeah. So the, that idea of like leaving your class being a little bit better human uh, than they walked in, um, I love. And actually, it's funny you said that because I, I have um, over the years said something very similar to people about like my hopes for, uh, you know, for students in my school is, you know, of course, it'd be great if some of them become, you know, doctors and writers and all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, in my heart, I feel like it's I want you to be a little bit better than, than you were the, when when you started here, right? And that we can we can say, if nothing else, we accomplished that. Um, you know, in this in this historical moment, um, what are what are some of the things that that means to you in terms of kids leaving your class being a little bit better? Uh, th you know, through the lens of of history, um, we talk about empathy, and that's something that that really becomes an essential theme in class. Um, I also have a, a phrase on my wall and that we talk about as well in Ubuntu. Um, and I actually have them go ahead and look that word up, um, talk about what it means. And we kind of do like a fray model along with it at the beginning of the year. So we talk about what it means, different synonyms for it. We also talk about what it doesn't mean and kind of the antonyms for it as well. Um, and that really does kind of shape the way that class works. Um, so if you were to walk into my classroom, you would see um, four round tables, uh, various ways in which you could sit down between chairs, stability balls, um, stools, um, 
yoga mats and things of that nature. And so we really do try to incorporate as much of this idea of togetherness and community as we possibly can. Um, I have a bin that, that's labeled to commu uh, community supplies. So we have um, pens, pencils, erasers, markers, scissors. So they don't really have to bring in anything on their own. Um, but one thing that I make sure that my classes understand is that they have to take care of those community supplies for, them, for each other and for themselves. Um, and so everything that I try to do with class kind of organizes itself around this idea of community and something being larger and bigger than just yourself, um, which is also one of the reasons why um, in my classroom we don't have like a one-to-one -one, um, tablet or um, laptop um, kind of ratio. Ours is one to two basically. So I have every two students with a laptop. So in that way they can learn how to collaborate, they can learn how to share, they can learn how to discuss um, different topics, they can learn how to agree, and even more importantly, they can learn how to disagree and how to have civil kind of have civil dis discourse. And so in those ways, um, I try to bring that idea of community and togetherness to life every day. Um, and in some ways without even necessarily teaching it, but it's just kind of in the atmosphere around. Now, I'm someone who follows you on Twitter and fully, fully, fully enjoys, enjoys your posts. Um, I think it's safe to say that you are unapologetically black in everything that that, that means. And following you on Twitter, sometimes I, I, I think, well, man, I wonder how his administration might feel about this particular post or this particular tweet or a parent. And you mentioned before having uh, perhaps a little bit of parents' concern. Um, have you had a overall, overall in your experience, uh, when have you experienced folks kind of sending you a message to quote unquote tone it down and not be so quote unquote political or black as a teacher. <laughs> um, at one of my previous stops teaching at an independent school, it was in Simi Valley and it was um, gloriously diverse Simi Valley. Oh yeah, wonderfully. <laughs> and I've, I've had some amazing times in Simi Valley. Beautiful historical record for Simi Valley, I'm sure. Exactly. We, yes. we, can talk, we can talk off the record about some of the things that I've experienced there. Yeah. Um, and that was really at the time that I was really begin, get, beginning to get into Twitter and, and really kind of put my, my voice out there and forward. And uh, at the beginning of that, I had my campus director at the time um, sit down and kind of talk to me about uh, what they expected, um, how they thought that I should engage and things of that nature. Um, and as a black man, like I had to sit there and take it regardless. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that, that I'm not necessarily a fan of in America is the fact that for a lot of us, we kind of have to put our humanity and what we feel sometimes to the side because we also have professional obligations. Um, and we can understand how hard it is to maybe find a job and things of that nature. And so right. um, I had to kind of tone it down in some instances there. Uh, that also let me know that that wasn't the right place for me. And so uh, after that, I decided to leave, um, got to another independent school, and they've been supportive. Um, I also decided not to make my account private. I leave it open, and so are my uh, direct messages. And so I've received some pretty interesting messages in those I'm as well. Sure. Um, I allow my students and former students to follow me along as, along with parents and other administrators, um, coworkers as well. And uh, like I've told my administration um, a couple of times, and it's not like they've ever brought me in to really discuss it, but it's kind of come up in passing. But like I've told them, just like I'll tell my students and their parents, I don't post anything that I would necessarily feel comfortable saying out loud. And if anybody has um, any questions or anything like that, then they're more than welcome to come and contact me, whether through email, whether through Twitter, whether in person. Um, and I have no problem sitting down and having a conversation to justify what I've said. And so I take my, my Twitter activity very personal and uh, I take it serious. And I know that it's got um, a lot of professionalism that has to go into that because I know that I have responsibility, not just to myself, but to my family and to my community um, and to my students that I teach and to my school. Yeah. 
Peter Darker on Twitter. We'll we'll uh, link his uh, his. Tw- Actually, what's your at on Twitter? Um, mine is I am Leo Glaze. I am Leo Glaze. Yeah. Is, right. there, is there a story behind the Peter Darker? Um, I'm a big Spider-Man fan, okay. and uh, <laughs> and so it seemed just kind of hit me one day that I figured that I should just go ahead and change it from Peter Parker to Peter Darker to kind of go along with the skin color and who I am and what I am. Love it, love it. Yeah. Um, so, Leo, you, uh, you know, being a history teacher at this moment in history, uh, I think, at least from from someone who's not actually in uh, in the classroom, in my head, it feels like both a wonderful time and an incredibly stressful time to be uh, to be a teacher because we are living through some crazy stuff. And on the one hand, we're living through some crazy stuff and you get to, you know, your students are going to like tell stories about being there for impeachment and other kinds of things, right? Um, and, you know, being there for the crazy things that were just happening and going unchallenged. Um, and so there's that side of things. And then on the other side of things, we, we are living in this sort of like post-truth, post-factual kind of era, which maybe runs counter to the very discipline of history itself, right? Yeah. Uh, we can't have shared facts. We have alternative facts nowadays, <laughs> right? Uh, so... I'm wondering if you could talk about how, you know, in your time uh, in the classroom, how you think the teaching of history has kind of changed, how you, uh, you know, how your understanding of how to approach the craft of teaching history has maybe had to evolve or not, perhaps, uh, you know, given given just the the de- the era that we live in <laughs> at this moment. Um, it's a great question. Um, over the the last ten years or so, I, I can look back and think about how my teaching has changed. Um, I can remember getting to my first classroom and knowing that I had a book that I had to teach by along with standards as well. And as I continuously kind of moved forward and got more comfortable with just not not only myself and the teaching of the subject and the schools and communities in which I was in, um, it also allowed me to begin to look at those textbooks for what they were. Um, and so we ended up spending a lot of time in my early years actually going through with the pen or pencil and, and students after we did research, we'd go ahead and we'd actually cross things out. Um, things that just weren't true or things that were not factual. I'd have them kind of write in their own opinions um, and give their thoughts on things that the books were saying. And uh, it got to the point um, a few years ago where I looked at, I looked back at a textbook that we had over the course of the year and we crossed out approximately 40 to 45% of, of what was written in there. And it was at that time that I decided that having a book wasn't really necessary. And so we actually got away from using textbooks. And I'm, I'm fortunate that the school that I'm at now um, allowed me to create my own curriculum from scratch and from the ground up. And so I did that in the mindset of not having a textbook, not giving tests, um, and really trying to, to get more into the research-based idea of teaching history. And um, I talk to my students all the time about the difference between education and learning. And to me, education is something that's kind of given to you and kind of thrown at you and taught towards you. And learning is what you can do on your own. And so in, within my classroom, there are going to be certain topics that I have to give them the overall view about. So that's where the education part comes in. But for the bulk of it, it really is kind of guided by their own interests, the questions that they generate, um, and then how much learning they're willing to do with different subjects. And so over the last 10 years, another thing that's really helped out has been um, social media, for better or for worse. Mm. Um, I've learned so much from different people online, um, not just the good stuff, but also the bad stuff as well. 
Um, I also tell my students all the time as, as well that when it came to me learning how to be a teacher and wanting to be a teacher, I learned a lot from my history teachers growing up from elementary to high school of what not to do uh, more than what actually to do. And I was able to kind of take that and incorporate that into wanting to be the type of teacher that I wanted to have when I was their age. Um, but Twitter has helped immensely. It's led me to um, different thoughts and opinions. It's led me to um, different sources of information, primary source documents. It's got me to interact with different people that I never would have had the opportunity to do otherwise. And so uh, that has really helped and shaped and formed um, history moving forward over like the last decade. So a lot of folks out there, it sounds like your approach is what some would call teaching so-called hard history or, or critical history. And there's a lot of history teachers out there who see that as being political as like, you know, we need to stick to the so-called facts of the founding fathers and the constitution, Bill of Rights and all that. And there's a lot of organizations out there uh, putting out some really good resources to help history teachers push back against that in terms of, um, you know, teaching tolerance, obviously is an ed project and, and places of that nature. So it sounds like you've been doing that work uh, really organically and with the support of your, your uh, administrators and your staff there. Um, for any history teacher that's listening to the show that's thinking like, man, we need to just get back to old school, like kids need to know about Gettysburg and this, you know, the year it happened and this and that. Um, what would you say is the importance of students across the country doing this hard, critical learning of history that your students are doing? You know, at, at the end of the day, um, like I said earlier, my biggest goal for them is for them to become better people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know anybody who's become a better person knowing when the Gettysburg Address was written. Um, but I do know people that have become better knowing the how and the why of history. Um, the who and the what are kind of surface level, and those are pretty right. easy. Um, I can almost teach any kid or any person to memorize facts. But if there is no um, empathy, if there is no humanity, or if there is no deeper understanding of why those facts matter, then there really isn't much of a point. Um, I teach my kids unapologetically. Um, I, I, I teach them hard history because I think that that's what it takes in order to make sure that they see um, the things around them for what they are. Um, people that don't necessarily want that um, really want the status quo and that keeps things comfortable. And I think that all of us need to do a better job of learning how to have these uncomfortable conversations um, and learning what they're about and, and learning from them and having a hard time with them and, and having a hard time sitting with things like this. Um, and so when it also comes to teaching hard history, it's the best way for us to learn to really kind of break down these walls in order to build something up anew. Um, one of the, the other sayings that I have up on my wall is to think otherwise. And I, I kind of teach that to them and their parents as the idea that we've already seen what history has done. We've seen all these uh, millions of kind of really small decisions that were made and seen exactly what the way they've led to us now. Um, but this idea of thinking otherwise lets our students know, and lets our kids know that this wasn't the way that things had to happen, that there were decisions that people could have made and they could have made one way or another. And then for whatever reason they decided, they made it mm -hmm. the way that they did. Um, but we can go back and we can kind of reimagine America in a better light and in a better image. And uh, that's one of my hopes for them. Um, and with that, um, I try to make sure that history for them is not just static, but that it's dynamic and let them know that it's always forever changing um, with the history and the ideas that we go along with it. Um, and then also let them know that they can be creative with history. And so again, this idea of thinking otherwise is a creative platform for them to use uh, when we go back and we look at different events and different peoples and we think about uh, what other choices they could have made that could have been better, not just for themselves, but hopefully for the country at large. Leah, what, uh, so what age levels are you teaching? And, um, and with that in mind, 
uh, how do you approach uh, sort of creating the the safe space in which students can engage in some pretty difficult conversations or some reckoning with a, with a very difficult history of this country? I teach middle school, and at my school, it's 7th and 8th grade. On top of that, our 7th and 8th grade classes are always mixed. So in my classes that are normally between 16 and 18 students, um, I have a mix of 7th and 8th graders in there together. Um, early, we talked about the idea of, of things becoming political or not trying to make them apolitical. Um, and for me, um, if you'd asked me about 10 years ago, I probably would have said, yeah, that's probably the right way to go. Um, but again, as I've gained more experience and gained more knowledge and become more comfortable within myself, um, I know that we can't be apolitical. Uh, I need my students and their families to know that when they walk into my classroom that they are going to be safe, that they're going to be loved, that they're going to be seen, that they're going to be heard, that it's okay for them to make mistakes. I also want them to know that if for some reason uh, any one of them were undocumented, that I'm not calling ICE or the federal government to, to let them know where, where people are. They also need to know that if they um, have a, a different sexual orientation than what I have, that I'm not going to look at them any differently than somebody else, but I am going to recognize it and that we are going to talk about those things, but that's not going to be looked at and just kind of glossed over and made to seem like it's bad. Um, and so with those types of ideas that have kind of floated around this country for the last few years and then obviously before that, um, I need my students to know that when they walk into my class that they're going to be safe um, in almost every way that they could possibly imagine. And so, I mean, with that, those are the ways in which I'm political within my classroom. And I think that that's... Um, the way that I handle it, and I know some other teachers choose not to engage in those conversations or engage in those insights. Um, but for me, I couldn't imagine myself being a teacher not letting my students know exactly where I sit when it comes to um, certain politics that we see on TV every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, have you have you had moments when uh, there was pushback against that, or where you know a student? Um, yeah, I think in this era, what's interesting is. Uh, a lot of things that I think um, I would have certainly understood to be somewhere on the kind of hate speech spectrum have now become this sort of mainstream, you know, the president says it on TV every day, mm -hmm. right? Or freedom so, of speech, Jeff. Uh, Don't you yeah. appreciate freedom of speech? <laughs> exactly. I can't have an opinion. Yeah. So, um, so I think there's spaces in which like mainstream discourse has, uh, you know, has taken on like white, clear white supremacist uh, tones, right, and uh, you know, clear misogynistic tones, and um, but it's like said by people who are generally considered in in the world to like be the people that when they say something, we're supposed to listen and and just debate it objectively, right? So have you have you had situations where like you know we're creating this this open uh, space and somebody just you know says something that is in clear violation of that? Um, or that sort of thing. Yes, um, I've had it happen quite a few times. Um, the school that I'm at now is a liberal progressive school. And I think in some ways, um, a lot of people that are either within that sort of field or even outside of it that think about it, they take that idea of liberal progressive as to meaning that everybody is entitled to share their own opinions. Um, and in some ways you are. Um, and, and I can understand and get that point. Um, you're, everybody's entitled to an opinion. In my classroom, if you're going to talk about something that denigrates somebody else, if you're going to engage in um, oppressive speech, then you don't get that benefit to speak in my classroom. That's something that you are going to keep to yourself. And if you do raise your hand and you start down that road, then I cut you off. And then from that point in time, we, we get to move on and we get to talk about why what was said um, hurts others and, and doesn't just benefit you. Um, and so that's something that I also make pretty readily apparent when it comes to um, my students on the first couple of days of class, um, 
to students, to teachers, um, other administrators or parents when it comes to back to school night, that everybody's allowed to have an opinion. But if your opinion is going to hurt others, uh, then you're not allowed to, to really share that in my class. Like you don't get that right and you don't get that space. And so it's been uncomfortable at different points in time. Um, but I also have to understand that if I'm going to teach my, my students and parents as well about having these uncomfortable conversations and experiences, that I've got to lean into that as well. So That's great. I, and I, as a history teacher, I appreciate what you said about having to learn, or I think you use the phrase, find your voice over time. Because when I started uh, in my profession, uh, when I started teaching history, um, I also was of the school of thought that, you know, you're supposed to be so-called non-political. And I remember my favorite history teacher growing up refused to ever tell us if he was a Democrat or Republican. He always said, like, I need you to make up your own mind. It's not about what I think. And, and you know, sort of that, that was the, the school of thought I was, I was trained in, I guess you could say. And I've had to find my voice over time and realize that actually that does a lot of harm and a lot of damage to students who are uh, truly, truly feeling that their humanity is being questioned or, or being attacked in this uh, current era, especially. However, there is still the question of what are you going to do with the history major? How are you going to make money with that? What does all this mean? It's the uh, STEM era. Fine, this is all great and like, you know, whatever. We can look, talk about politics and all that. But at the end of the day, I'm going to college and I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to work for Google. I'm going to get paid. Um, what does history matter in this day and age? I think something like 2% of college um, students right now are history majors. So why even? pursue this beyond your middle school experience? Well, to me, if history is taught right, you're going to walk out of there being a better human. Um, it's really easy to get education. Um, it's really easy to take the ideas of humanity or even just history and the way that we treat people um, out of certain subjects. Um, in a perfect world, I would love to have every subject that we teach, whether it's history or English or math or science or any other topic, Spanish or any other language, incorporate um, these ideas of social justice um, and history and empathy into them as well, because race and privilege impact every single thing that we do. It's in the air that we breathe, it's in the water that we drink, and it impacts every single subject that's there. Um, and so when it comes to students that, that want to get into STEM, and I think that that's a great platform and a great way to get in, um, if you're just looking at numbers and you're just looking at science and the science of it, but you don't have any morals or ethics to go along with that, mm. um, that's when education becomes dangerous. And that's when um, kind of the default setting creeps back in. And um, when the default setting creeps back in, that really stops progress from being made. And so when it comes to people being history majors, I, I would love if everybody was a history major. It'd be great. Um, but at the end of the day, any subject that's taught right should have all these different qualities that are kind of thrown into them. And so you can be a STEM major if you want to. And, and I applaud that. And it's a great way to just kind of hop in and work for Google and make some money. But if that's all you're really trying to do and you're not trying to be a better person, then what good does all that money do? And what good does working for Google do as well? And so uh, with history, you can do tons. I mean, you can get in any type of research field that you want. It teaches you how to critically analyze data. It teaches you how to um, talk to others, have civil discourse. It teaches you how to do research. Um, it teaches you how to think and write critically. Um, and then hopefully it teaches you how to understand other people's cultures and norms and, and other ideas as well. And so uh, I, I could imagine that it shouldn't really matter what field you want to get into. If you have been taught history and, 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 and learned history the right way, you can pretty much step into any field that you want to and do a really great job because a lot of what we do professionally for our jobs isn't necessarily about what we know, but it's about who we know and how we treat other people. And if you can do that, you'll find a way to 
to make your career what you want it to be. So, yeah. You're, uh, as you talk, you're making me think of, there's a, I think it's a, it's a King quote that I'm going to totally butcher now. And, and uh, I always butcher. I know, man. I, cause you I have to my Angelou before. And uh, like, <laughs> I, I kind of got to my Angelou, right. right. But, uh, uh, basically he's commenting on like the, the need for both, you know, sort of the technical and the moral aspects of education. And, and the quote ends with like, if we don't do that, we wind up having guided missiles and misguided men. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and of course, you know, men and women, uh, and others, uh, in, in today's context. Um, but I, I, that resonates so much with me, the, um, you know, both the sort of journey, which I went through as well of right. like, how do I make sure I'm not sort of too much of myself as a teacher in this conversation? And then how do I also have it, uh, integrity <laughs> in yeah. the work to say like, certain things are also wrong, you know, like racism is actually bad. And so we're not going to be able to entertain a notion where there are two righteous sides of this conversation. There's, there's a, a, a historical record and then there's a, a moral compass <laughs> and we need to talk about those two things uh, and equip our students to be able to have that conversation and interrogate the world around them, uh, you know, with with that same type of moral compass. Right. Uh, which I, I get is, you know, it, it places you potentially in the crosshairs of like home uh, morality and righteousness and parents and community and and all of that. But I, I want to just uh i think applaud your your bravery um leo and you know and carrying that stance into the work and uh and in particular in doing so in a context where you know we've talked about on the show i think uh numerous times that in some ways i i would argue the crisis in american education as it's often framed is not at all what the real crisis is the crisis is we're raising in my view millions of you know white folks who are enter into the world uh, with deeply problematic racist beliefs that were not challenged in their in their education, right? in their K-12 education. And maybe we'll get challenged in college, maybe, if you're lucky, if you take those right classes. Um, but uh, to be in a space where you are, you're kind of carrying that torch, I think is, is vitally important. Thank you. When it comes to both of my classes, I teach uh, United States history and then also teach um, ancient civilizations, world empires. Um, and when it comes to both of those, um, I try to decenter whiteness as much as I possibly can. So we talk about American history in the context of all the important events and people that were there as well. Um, but we try to take it from different standpoints of view. So the standpoints of view of both free and enslaved black people, women, indigenous peoples, um, people that might have been LGBTQ, uh, people that might not have been able-bodied and things of that nature, the poor, um, the uneducated. And so in those ways, I try to decenter as much of that kind of classic idea of whiteness as we possibly can. Um, and even when it comes to my ancient civilizations and world empires classes, um, I also don't necessarily go over and review a bunch of European um, civilizations and empires. Um, and one of the reasons why I feel that way is because when they get into high school, get into college, like if they wanted to, they could actively choose not to really know much about Egypt, Mesopotamia, West Africa, Mesopotamia if they wanted to. And they could go through the rest of their career and in their academic lives, not learning any of that stuff. The things that mm -hmm. there are going to be always readily apparent are always going to be Greece and Rome and medieval Europe and things of that nature that they're going to actively kind of walk into when they want to. And, and it's always just kind of around them. And so um, in those ways, I try to make sure that I, I decenter. That, that classic idea of whiteness. Um, 
whiteness and in, in classes in general um, also kind of revealed itself in the idea of us kind of talking about their privilege um, and, and even like what their skin color means. And, and even with that, my school is probably about 66% white and then the other 34% or so are um, different peoples of color. And uh, having to have some of these complex and difficult conversations with other kids of color that are in the room um, can always be a bit difficult. And I always try to check in with them to make sure that they're that that they're in the right headspace. That some of the topics that we're getting ready to talk about aren't going to necessarily uh, be too draining on them as well. Um, and then also with that, I, I try to bring in my own morality and my own experiences because I want them to try to talk about theirs as well. And I can't have them do that for themselves if I'm not willing to do it on my own. Um, and that's why I dress the way that I dress. I I, I wear shirts like these that that have Tongvalan on them. Um, Black Lives Matter, so in that way when I wear shirts, we can kind of spark and have conversations. Um, also wear my Jordans, I also wear other shoes and other Nikes and stuff, because I, I want them to see what that's like, and I want them to see what, what it's like to, to kind of give yourself to other people and to have people want to learn you and know you. And um, with that being said, um, it's easy to just go ahead and kind of teach the way that you're supposed to in the way that the state or the school would like you to and make it really comfortable. But um, I've actively tried to go against kind of teaching by the status quo because um, I kind of take from the standpoint of view that any other teacher that they might have might not do what I'm doing. And this might be the last time at 12 or 13 or 14 years old mm. that they're going to ever learn about Mesoamerica or Western Africa or um, what the Declaration of Independence actually meant for black folks and women. So. Mm. Well, I really much, uh, really much, I very much appreciate it. It seems clear that at a time where or throughout history, uh, marginalized peoples have always been, is, is always been a challenge to be your full self. And as a black male educator, I know I've always had that challenge of, of whether or not I could be my full authentic self. And it's very clear from what you share with us today that you are your full authentic self, both in person, in your classroom and online. And um, Jeff, I don't know if you know the technical term for this, but what he's shared today has been big facts, big facts, big technically facts. speaking. Yeah, that's, that is, and uh, I'm sure that's in Urban Dictionary. Somewhere. I believe so. And yes. um, I don't know if Leo is aware of this, but we have very um, rigorous, um, high, high standard requirements for being on all of the above. And that that's is true. that you have to be a phenomenal educator and you have to be a dope educator to be on all of the above. And Leo, of course, checks both boxes and then some. So we very much appreciate that you came on to our set to share a little bit about your craft and your experience in, in the world of education, because this has been uh, very, very, uh, for myself as a, a black history teacher, very fulfilling to hear um, somebody else speak about their, their practice and their experience, because there's not enough of that in history discussions around the nation, history teaching discussions. It's very, very much white male centered. And I really, really appreciated hearing what I heard today. I mean, what he said. Uh, all that. <laughs> all that. Yeah, uh, definitely appreciate it. Uh, really grateful that you can make the time to uh, to join us, Leo. And um, we also have uh, this tradition uh, on the show of, you know, our dope guests that we bring on mm -hmm. tend to leave the show and go on and do even doper things. They tend and to. We, uh, we call thing. that the AOTA bump, uh, which is our way of taking credit for stuff that we probably shouldn't take credit for. But, uh, but nonetheless, we're going to do it. Uh, so 
So, Leo, um, we, we offer you the uh, the potential of the AOTA bump uh, <laughs> now that you've been on the show. Um, but, no, in all seriousness, thank you for joining us. Uh, really love the conversation. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll stay on the lookout for, for Peter Darker uh, on Indeed. Twitter as well. Thank sure. you. I definitely appreciate both of you having me on. Um, I'd love to get that bump if, if it happens and when <laughs> it does. Um, I will not forget where I came from. I will uh, <laughs> extend the courtesy of coming back whenever you want me. And right, uh, sure. this will be where it all started. That's right, man. You can sure. help us with our $0 production budget uh, someday. So. All right. <laughs> will do. All right, folks. So that concludes today's seminar. Up next will be Class Dismissed, where we shout out people doing wonderful things in the world of education. Stay tuned. Right, folks, we have come to that time in our episode. We are here and ready for our class dismissed. Manuel, what do we got today? Well, we want to give a very special shout out to D Smoke. Now, Jeff, I know that all of our viewers and listeners know about D Smoke, and I know you do too, but let me go ahead and just explain just in case. So D Smoke was recently crowned the winner of Rhythm and Flow, which is a rap competition show that's streaming on Netflix. And the thing about D Smoke and the reason why we want to shout him out on all of the above is that he is a teacher. He is a black male teacher and he teaches locally at Inglewood High School. And in his music, he represents his teaching journey and the importance of education quite a bit, quite a bit. And it's not often that we see representation of teachers out there in pop culture for sure in a positive way. And it's even more rare to come across a black male educator who is out there and receiving recognition for his arts and taking the opportunity to shout out teaching as a profession and the importance of education. So we want to shout out D Smoke for representing for all of us educators and all of us black male educators specifically. His music is phenomenal. And the, the show was co-hosted by Chance the Rapper, who received some accolades last fall for supporting the Chicago teacher strike and, to, and for really representing for the teachers out in Chicago and for uh, Chicago public schools and donating money to Chicago public schools and all of that. And even though this particular show wasn't about education, it really did uh, represent the importance of teaching and D Smoke himself winning the whole thing, I think was, uh, was, was really, really, really dope. So yeah. shout out to D Smoke. Shout out to D. Inglewood High. I haven't watched, but I am going to now. I'll now tell you, you got much. to now. Yeah. And exactly. that is not a paid uh, sponsorship. That was not a, not an ad for that particular show. But if you are, know. you know, obviously. But if, if, if Netflix if, if, wants to sponsor all we of the gladly, above, we can put a little Netflix uh, little, little ban thing there. banner Chiron situation. We, we can get we, that going. We could. We yes. could. So anyway, brought, shout brought out to you by Netflix. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> all right, folks. Well, um, as always, thank you for, for watching the episode. And how about this? To kick off the new year, happy 2020, by yep. the way. Happy New Year. Hope everyone had a great holiday break, whatever that looked like for you. Indeed. And um, we could really use your support, right? We, we know that uh, we have just such an amazing group of folks who follow the show 
Um, but we're trying to reach an even bigger and broader audience. So every little bit that you do helps. Um, so if you see a post online and you want to share it, that's on Twitter or on Facebook, please do. Um, if you are streaming us, if you are listening to the podcast, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on SoundCloud, like the episodes, give us a good rating, share it with even one other person in your family. Um, every little bit helps. Um, and of course, uh, on YouTube, give us that thumbs up and uh, make sure you're you're sharing what you what you like here on all the above. Um, we 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 work hard to bring uh, good content to folks. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we get the enjoyment of expanding the conversation about education. So help us do that and uh, and spread the word. Yes, indeed. Oh, and lastly, a uh, shout out to uh, Jeff for these lovely winter decorations on set i uh, litter everywhere i'm yeah the, but you know these trees might be the end of all life on earth i think they're toxic they must be toxic <laughs> but they're beautiful yes. they're 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 uh, very nice yes uh and like three dollars at target or something uh, like that so cool. you know that's that's what comes with the non-netflix endorsed uh, <laughs> all the above budget help Woo. us get some nicer trees people indeed yeah <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for tuning in this time. We will see you again next time.